Hey everyone, if you listened to last week's episode on Nightbreed, then you definitely heard us announce Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse as this week's episode. Well, if you've already started this, you can see that that is not, in fact, this week's episode. Uh, Joe and I messed up a bit and announced the wrong movie last week, so if you haven't seen Mikhail Suave's incredibly fun 1987 slasher, Stage Fright, it's currently streaming on both Shudder and Tubi. After you've checked out the film, please enjoy this week's episode, and... Of course, stay tuned next week for our episode on The Lighthouse. Sorry about that. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Lucifer the Cat. We're talking staging a murder tableau. And we're talking Everyone's Poor the Musical. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking Right Between the Eyes. Right between the eyes. <laughs> right between the eyes. <laughs> he is so impressed with himself. I love it. It's it's a very bizarre ending to a very bizarre movie, Joe. So everyone, we are discussing Mikhail Suave's Stage Fright, a.k.a. Deliria, a.k.a. Aquarius. And I think there's a bird name in there somewhere, too. But in the <laughs> States, in North America, we've got Stage Fright. And I'm so happy because this is one of the few Italian horror films that I have like really, really, really embraced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. This is sort of an anniversary. It's the 35th anniversary of when the film debuted in Italy. Of course, it would be another two years for us to cover it if we did the North American premiere. Yeah, but this has been on our list for a while um, because we do have some cool representation in here. Um, it's slight, but it mm-hmm. does exist. <laughs> it does. It's fun. I like bread a lot. Actually. Oh, Brett's, bread is fantastic. Also, apparently the actor helped tinker some of the dialogue in the script, so... You know? Okay. Hmm. Um, but Joe, why don't we bring in someone to help us pick apart stage right? Because there's a lot of cuckoo bananas things going on here. Everyone, she is a self-proclaimed giallo fiend, a freelance film critic, and Arrow video contributor. She is also the co-host of Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and appreciation of giallo cinema with a slant towards the genre's lesser celebrated titles. Please welcome Rachel Nisbet. Oh, hello. Thank you both for having me. And that wonderful introduction that makes me sound far kind of more together in my career than I probably am. <laughs> you can thank your Twitter bio. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just cultivate that Twitter bio, make me sound better than I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the show, Rachel. And thank you for coming on to discuss uh, Stage Fright. No problem. I'm excited to be here. And it's nice to get that kind of queer representation of the film as well, because that's kind of a, a perspective you don't typically hear of it. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Especially not from this time period. Yeah. I mean, like, I know Stage Fright, I'm sure we'll get into it. It's a bit of a kind of quasi shallow, you know, shallow slash slasher. Because that sounds terrible. Shallow cum slasher. And um, yeah, it's like one of those, like, it's kind of a genre that's maybe not got the best representations of, you know, of gay people. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they are there. But uh, yeah, Stage Fright's kind of, uh, I suppose, a 1980s take on a, a gay, gay character, shall we say. Well, right. I'm I'm glad that you you kind of like hesitated when you said giallo though, because both Joe and I mm-hmm. were trying to figure out like, well, it, does this qualify as a giallo? 
I know. Well, this is the thing because you invited me on. You're like, do you want to talk about stage fright? And I was like, of course. But then I'm one of those people that I'm like, I don't really think it's too much of a shadow. Like, I mm. guess because it's Italian. And like, I'm sure you've both come across this yourself. Like, loads of people would be like, oh, it's an Italian horror film. Therefore, it's a shadow. And I, I, yeah, it's such a, you know, vague title in some ways, especially for like non-Italian speaking people. It's, you know, like it's kind of butchered all the time what it means. But like, I tend to think of it as a murder mystery. And I suppose this isn't hmm. really a murder mystery. Yeah, because I get... We, Joe and I have been through these like what is a giallo like what yeah. is a component and it's it, there are like concrete aspects of it but then also not <laughs> concrete mm-hmm. aspects of it yeah and by the time you get to like 1987 pretty much those concrete kind of interpretations of the of the title like of the um feel-on kind of go straight out the window so then you've got all sorts of different kind of films which are I suppose because you know like you know yourselves like about how prevalent the American slasher came and then obviously the Italians mm-hmm. being the Italians went and kind of made their own versions of those films. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we end up with these like weird kind of bastardized versions, I suppose you could call them. Yeah, I mean, genre is so mutable, right? I mean, it's always evolving and changing. And I think sometimes as genre fans, we almost want to put a pin in it and be like, no, but this is what it is because we're such staunch defenders. Like I'm so used to being like, no, people, we need to call this what it is. This is a giallo film. But this one really does straddle the line it feels like almost like if an american made a giallo film and it was like so it it really does it's somewhere between the slasher and the giallo well but it it, it, i mean yeah it is an italian making this but you know like and we'll get into this when we get into the production but you know this is suave's first time directing gig and oh listeners we actually have covered one of his films before um we did discuss della morte della more or cemetery man uh i want to say the first year of the podcast joe I think so, yes. Which I was very lukewarm on, and I like this movie a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just a touch more accessible, yeah. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I I get why people like Cemetery Man. It's just, when we're getting into kind of the weirdness of a lot of Italian horror, and again, it's weird, right? Like, I I like weird, I should like this, but man, I just could not connect with Cemetery Man, but I do connect with this, and it's a bit more straightforward. Yeah, and if folks want uh, a bit of a refresher on exactly what we mean when we're talking about Jello. Trace actually did a really good summation when we covered Malignant on the Patreon. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> talk about oh a movie God. that everyone was like, it's not really Giallo, but it is Giallo, but it's not Giallo, but it is Giallo. I was going to say when you mentioned like uh, kind of definitions and putting a pin in it earlier, I was like, oh, like Malignant, that was a bit of a shit film. <laughs> <laughs> so you had the same debates over on your side. <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually muted the word. I was like, I'm meeting Malignant and Shao, and I don't want to hear any of these like discussions because it was, Ooh. oh God, there's so many arguments at the time. I was like, I'm not getting involved in this. And that's the thing though, right? <laughs> like it should be a discussion. Like this to me is not an argument. Like James Wan, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into Malignant. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she muted it for oh a God. reason. <laughs> Mute. <laughs> The only way with Twitter film discourse sometimes you're like, okay, that's enough oh of that. Like, I can, I can do without it. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's only in fairness, I'm not going to name the person. I'm not going to throw shade at anyone. But somebody said to they didn't say it to me. They just put on Twitter that they said Malignant was the best shadow ever made. And I thought it was a joke. Ooh. And I was like, oh, it wasn't a joke. And I was like, what the fuck? I was oh like, boy. how can it be? I was just like, what? And like, like opinions are subjective. I was like, oh my god, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's when I muted it after that. <laughs> the key, the, the, the key phrase here is James Wan saying, "It's my version of a giallo." Yes. Like yeah. that's the key. <laughs> 
But I like that, that though. But I like that because it is, you know, it's very much like you were all saying about like you know genres and they change and they're malleable and things. Mm-hmm. And then you've got people kind of doing their own interpretation, which I don't know if you've heard the term like neo giallo, but myself and like other people sometimes use that as just a way of saying films that are kind of paying homage to it or are influenced oh. by it, but aren't like a full on, you know, like pretending to be like a murder mystery from 1971 type thing. Which is quite, yes, I quite like that. I like that a lot too, because I, when I talk about things like film noir, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm often like, oh, we talk about neo-noir for anything that's really taking place after the 60s. So yeah, new giallo makes perfect sense. Could you give me an example maybe of like one or two neo-giallos like off the top of your head? So I think like the strange color of your body's tears. Do you know that one? It's That kind of straddles more towards like art film, like because that's the thing. Some of them are more, more in that style. But I mean, so many films have been given that kind of I mean, I'm just trying to think of like what ones you would know because a lot of them end up being shorts and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I will say though because you know, I, I listened to one of your um your one of your episodes of your podcast today, and I was looking at the you. list. And oh, you're you're welcome. But it's you know <laughs> it says it right there in the description. You know, you're discussing the lesser celebrated giallo films, and admittedly, I'm not well versed in giallo because it's not. Despite loving American slashers and especially whodunits, I don't always find myself gravitating towards giallo. And so I was looking through your list, and I was like oh i've never heard of any of these movies mm-hmm. <laughs> no i was just gonna say it's funny that you say that because i'm like i'm like obviously love these like like shally but then i'm not a massive fan of the slasher so obviously mm. something and you kind of assume that like it works both ways but for some reason you find people's sensibilities are more towards one than the other sometimes yeah some people most most of people like both but it, yeah it's, it's funny kind of i'm a bit like the, the reverse of you then yeah. yeah. So what we're saying is that everyone's a little bit bi curious when it comes to oh Jello and slashers. <laughs> Bravo. No, actually, come to think of it, before you were saying about um, a Neo Shallow, and I'm, I was trying to think of films that you might know, you'll know Knife and Heart. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, there's a good example. I, I actually, because the, the thing that I always usually struggle with with Gialli, um is kind of like the meandering narrative and like things happen for no reason, which that that to me is more art house, I guess. But yeah, where you're seeing like more art house take on Gialli qualities and Knife Plus Heart, which I do really like, though, also has that like end of second act thing where they just go off to yeah. the woods and mm-hmm. do their own thing for like 20 minutes of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you have to let go of certain parts of like narrative continuity and just sort of go with the flow. And sometimes that's not easy. Like I'm a person who very much enjoys character arcs and narrative arcs. And those are the elements that I struggle with with Giallo. But I find that the visual imagery often compensates for that where I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll just get lost in whatever's happening. It doesn't make a lick of sense to me. And yet I'm having a good time. Exactly. I think that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of people will say all these films. And I don't agree with like it for the, you know, like categorizing the whole of these films in this way. But some of them are very much, you know, like the narratives are secondary to the visual mm-hmm. artistry artistry shall we say right but i think that's the thing as well that i think you know because like it's interesting you picked up on the art house qualities of the shallow and i'll kind of admit this myself i think there's a certain kind of pretentiousness that sometimes comes with it i don't know if you encounter that <laughs> i mean i think people must look at my twitter and think i'm really fucking pretentious sometimes but I, i'm honestly not but i think like a lot of people assume that fans of the shadow or maybe a bit more and maybe a bit more european or trying to mm. kind of you know like look at those neo-realist italian directors and how these people were kind of informed by that obviously it doesn't come across in the same way but yeah i wonder if there's a bit of that 
I actually think it, it really, honestly, if you're any kind of film critic or you analyze film in any shape, way, or form, um, we, we, we have been referred to as pseudo-intellectuals <laughs> by oh, people I who don't listen to our show. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but I think it's because, you no, know, I mean, there's a good chunk of people, like the mainstream audiences, who really just, they go to films for escapism, and they don't have room for analysis in their lives. And so when, when you're trying to pick apart something, which involves critiquing a good chunk of it, it's like people get angry about it if it's a film they love. Yes, I mean, like, especially like on Twitter, you really find that people are. I know everything in this conversation is going to go back to like on on Twitter. Like, this is mm-hmm. it. But yeah, people really don't like analysis for some reason. Like, certain people really don't like this kind of analysis when it comes to horror films. And I'm sure you yes. guys encounter mm-hmm. it when you're talking about. I don't know because you've talked about a lot of kind of like teen slashers and stuff, right? In oh your, yeah. In your mm-hmm. past, you must get people that go, "Why are you like analyzing that, or why are you trying to put like this kind of perspective into it?" It's not even just strictly horror. Like you know, when we, when we dared to call Batman Returns a queer allegory, um, some of the pushback. <laughs> well, from... You've been crucified. It's <laughs> 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 like you say that, like, oh my god, these people's heads must have exploded. <laughs> <laughs> do the yeah. star masculine comic book film uh, yeah but um okay well let's bring it back to stage fright and let's figure out how because honestly there's not a ton of information about this movie online i mean i i, I don't even i couldn't even tell you the first time i saw this movie but when i discovered it i fucking loved it so, okay, Mikhail Suave, this is the director of the film, he got to start acting, uh, with his most notable role being uh, Tommy Fisher in Lucio Fulci's 1980 film, City of the Living Dead. And after that, he started serving as assistant director to, oh god, Aristide Masachesi, but he's better known by his pseudonym Joe D'Amato, which is how I'm absolutely going to refer to him for the rest of this episode. Wise choice, yeah. <laughs> I also feel like most people will recognize Joe D'Amato as opposed to... Yeah, his actual name. Well, okay, so this name rings a bell for me. I, the name Joe D'Amato sounds so familiar, but when I went to go look up his filmography, I didn't recognize a lot of the films. A lot of them are heavily erotic, borderline porn films. But mm-hmm. what is your connection with this man? I only know him as kind of like an Italian Wes Craven, just because like they both started in porn and then they worked their way into more traditionally mainstream horror. Mm, that's that sort of sense. my frame of reference. Is there like one movie that like you're like, oh yeah, that's D'Amato, like that's the one. No. No, just a bunch. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to get my answer. Well, okay. So it was in 1982 where Suave began his collaboration with Dario Argento. So he acted as the second unit director in Tenebrae, previous episode. Please go listen to it. And then 1985's Phenomena, which he was also an actor in. Hmm. And also was the assistant director on Lamberto Bava's Demons, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, so Okay, so one day, Joe D'Amato calls Suave, and he's like, hey, I saw two of your music videos that you've done. Uh, he did one on Phenomena and one on Demons. Uh, and he's like, I like them, so I think you should make a movie. And <laughs> Suave, uh, <laughs> let's say he was humble. Uh, he thought D'Amato was crazy, and he was taking a big risk on him. Uh, in fact, Suave never had any ambitions to become a director. He was happy being an assistant director, which was his goal since he was young. And that's a pull quote from him which i thought that was really interesting like your goal since you were young was to be a second unit or assistant director i think that's also quite strange when you think about how like visionary his works like the church and the Mm -hmm. sector like Mm -hmm. i find that so strange because they're such you know like directorial you know it's like such a vision from a director that you like sorry i'm just repeating myself there but it's um it's it's strange to think of someone who just is like oh i'm happy you know assisting on other people's films to come out with something that has such a unique feel to it and such a kind of distinct visual language 
Yeah. Very, very odd. But also he sent out a lot of letters to um, Dario Argento in stories when he was younger and seemed to kind of want to come up a bit on, on that side of things. And that's the thing. So he says, you know, the best thing that could have happened to him was to become the first assistant of Dario Argento, which is exactly mm-hmm. what happened. So he was content. I think he just wanted to be under the master for pretty much the rest of his life and yeah he's just like i don't want to do my own thing i want to help the master do his thing oh my god i'm i'm not gonna make a joke but i'll let listeners make their own yeah uh, but yeah, so he didn't want anything more, but he eventually did acquiesce, and he agreed to direct a film for D'Amato. Funnily enough, right after Stage Fright, though, um, Suave went back to second unit directing because Terry Gilliam watched this movie, and he loved it so much that he sought out Suave and said, hey, I'm doing a movie called Baron Munchausen, would you please be my AD on it? Unfortunately, at the same time, D'Amato wanted him to direct another movie. So when he was like, ooh, sorry, I'm going to go AD for uh, Terry Gilliam, it caused a rift between D'Amato and yeah. Swami because <laughs> oh he thought that was really stupid. But then again, it's like, who's going to, you know, turn down ter- Terry Gilliam exactly? It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially Terry Gilliam in what, like the mid 80s? He's at the height of some of his most iconic films. I mean, come on. Well, Suave was willing to do anything. So going back to the production of Stage Fright, um, he, any story, um, they read various scripts. The first one they read was written by an Italian screenwriter named Danielle Stropa, and they started working on that. But then another story came along, written by Luigi Montefiore, a.k.a. actor George Eastman, a.k.a. screenwriter Lou Cooper. Um, that's the one he's credited under on this film. <laughs> Why do all these movies have to have like 18 different names for everything? <laughs> I don't know. No, it's like they all, they, I think, in fairness, this kind of goes back to like the 50s and 60s. It was always, for some reason, they thought people would think their films were more credible if they were directed and made by Americans. So uh... everybody just used these strange pseudonyms all the time, which does make it kind of a nightmare when you're trying to just who's involved in some of the more obscure projects. You're just kind of mm-hmm. crying into your like notes going like, who, who's this and who's that? And... <laughs> Everything's just like a complete mess. But yeah, it was actually George Eastman, I think, that um, originally wanted to direct Stage Fright because he'd written it and then he wanted to direct it for whatever reason. That just didn't really happen for him. And so he kind of got involved instead. So I think it would have been quite a different film, to be honest, if that had happened. I I mean, yeah, because he also hadn't directed anything before either, but he also Mm -hmm. didn't, I think, but he didn't have the tutelage of Dario Argento and (laughs) Lucio Fulci and Liberto Bava uh, to help him out. Well, so, okay, so um, I'll just call him Cooper. Both D'Amato and Swabi, they thought, okay, well, this story is already strong enough. Uh, It didn't need big space. It didn't need spectacular scenes. It's set in a closed location. So this is what would be stage fright. Um, Sheila Goldberg, who plays the nurse who's obsessed with her aquarium in this film, uh, (laughs) she is credited with dialogue. So I'm guessing she did like translations for various actors on set. Or maybe she punched up the dialogue. Yeah, that's always, I was kind of thinking that earlier when I was like doing my notes. And I think, I don't know, you kind of wonder if she just inserted little bits to make it seem more realistic or how people would speak. I mean, Mm -hmm. a name like Sheila Goldberg, you presume she's an American. So maybe tried to Americanize aspects. I don't know. This is speculation, but. That's all we can do at this point. I know there's a lot of speculation in this game. (laughs) What's surprising, I mean, I don't think that this film I don't know that a lot of people look at this movie as a classic in terms of like when you think of, oh, slasher films or giallo films, like this is not the first one that comes to mind. 
but it's a very well regarded and I'm frankly shocked at the lack of information about nearly every aspect of this film like people mm. don't write on it people don't talk about it all that often and I find that really perplexing because it's such an enjoyable movie it's very surface level the discussions of it you know it's like people going through the plot and then going mm-hmm. say you know talk about Michaela's like um background with Argento and things but when it comes to the production details there's very little detail and also in the credits you know sometimes you'll get information about where it was filmed or you know mm. little snippets and nope. they all just kind of lead to dead ends and or just no information at all so again like you're kind of having to speculate about certain aspects of it and it's actually kind of funny too that we're talking about this um a few weeks after or i guess a month after nope comes out and talking about spectacle and you know mm-hmm. like taking trauma and like you know blah, blah blah when that's literally what happens in this movie like you can make a good read about what this movie is trying to say about art artists mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um, okay, so they start pre-production, and it's all good. Uh, they shared an office with the production of another movie. Uh, I didn't get the name, but I have to believe it was a movie. It was Joe D'Amato's 11 Days, 11 Nights, which is an erotic film starring five of the actors that are in stage fright and released the same year. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, because this, this is one of those straight, like, especially like when you see productions in the 80s and 90s, it seemed to be cheaper for people, or sometimes they got, I don't think this is the case with this film, but I might be wrong. Sometimes they got, you know, grants for filming oh, right so mm-hmm. what would happen is you would make two films in quick succession or in the same area or something like that and then you would have most of the same cast and crew so it was just uh, yeah. easier to shoot that way and quite a lot of films like italian films from kind of the late 80s early early 90s did that and i think that's just the case here and especially if you look at joe damato's like filmography he shot loads of films kind of in new orleans and that mm. part of america and you got the sense he just went over and shot as much as possible and then right. with the same people just for like ease in terms of budgets and things <laughs> yeah let's go over make 10 movies in like 25 days and That's uh, then we'll just happened. make bank yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and because uh, suave he surrounded himself with people who were already his assistants or folks he'd worked well with before after being in the industry for so long so this was kind of like a family gathering for him at least in terms of the crew the actors were all you know coming into audition so he wasn't as familiar with them although he was dating, and I don't know if it was before or if this happened during filming, but he was dating Barbara Kupisti, who plays Alicia. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Scandal. Um, Scandal. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, he did view this movie as a test for himself and applied the rules he learned doing his schooling with Argento about special effects, how to create tension and suspense in a scene, etc. It was supposed to last for about four weeks, the shooting, I mean, but it lasted for five because production often had problems meeting the predetermined schedule because cinematographer Renato Tafuri is someone who's very precise and needs to get things just right. Whereas Suave, and this is surprising to me, he said he's more accustomed to a gorilla kind of movie making, which I'm like, but Hmm. would you call like working under Bava and Argento like gorilla filmmaking? Yeah, that's very odd. And also I've heard like other people, I'm sure it was Kupisti or someone else, and I can't remember there was somebody else, but I've heard other people say he was a bit of a perfectionist. Yeah. Well he storyboarded this shit, which I'm wondering if maybe that happened when he started collaborating with the cinematographer. I don't know. Yeah, because mm. Argento very much came through that through that school of, you know, you storyboard everything and that's really important. Right. You've always got to kind of think of the visuals and how it all plays out. So yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm kind of finding that odd because I've heard kind of other things, but you know, yeah. you always hear these different different opinions or maybe he forgot (laughs) maybe yeah (laughs) it is a very weird comment though because when you watch this movie none of it seems like oh okay we just you know found a little bit of magic and we followed that trail or something like everything seems very stately and polished and like very very well thought out 
Well, okay, and so that, that I don't have a ton of, like, technical stuff, but, like, the one thing, <laughs> the, a dolly shot was the big thing, the big, big, like, stunt in this movie and the production. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this was a cheap movie. Uh, the only budget I could find was an estimated $1 million, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was smaller than that. The equipment was old, antiquated, heavy, and belonged to the production, so... To do a dolly move, you know, a dolly can move up and down. You put the camera on it, you shoot, but then the dolly needed to be counterweighted. So you had to have an operator there with his assistant and then do something like that. Like, it took a half day to do a dolly shot, basically. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. This was never in the planned production, but Swabi and his crew wanted to have at least one shot. So they saved it for the very end of the shoot, since it would take a whole morning. And they knew if D'Amato knew they used a dolly, he would have fired them all. Translate <laughs> <laughs> to math to the school of filmmaking. <laughs> yes. Uh, so on that day, they dismantled the stage so they could place the camera low and make, the mo- make a movement towards a girl's feet following a cat. It was a very complicated shot, particularly to keep focus, but this would, of course, turn out to be the opening shot of the film. Oh, my God. And the opening of this movie is so fucking genius. so good. (laughs) (laughs) The movie made it to theaters thanks to the foreign market because it was was well sold, and Swabi himself actually won an award in the Avoria's International Fantastic Film Festival's Fear section in 1987. Now, this is a French film festival that doesn't exist anymore, but... As Joe said, it was released around August 20th in Italy, and we got it in the States in May of 89. Uh, I'm pretty sure this was just a home video release. I don't think we got a theatrical release for this. Yeah, and interestingly, it didn't do well in Italy at all. No. Unreleased. Um, yeah, it was just not well received. And I found that I was kind of trying to get opinions from different people, you know, looking at different fans and things. And it seems that, I, and I'm, I'm kind of generalizing a bit, but it seems like Italians were more lukewarm on stage fright than north americans yeah so suave has an anecdote where he's like he's like oh when i was with uh argento we would go to the theater is to like you know check box office see how audiences are reacting and stuff so i did it by myself for this and i went to this theater it was a thousand seats and i asked the one of the theater managers like hey like how is it doing and he basically laughs at him and goes well why don't you go inside and look oh, no. and <laughs> it was a 1000 seat theater with one man inside watching it by himself oh god oh that's horrible humiliation yeah god yeah so i don't i don't know but i mean do y'all have anything as to why italians would have been less uh, nice to this than americans would be maybe because it is it is it is more american it feels more american than it is italian yeah i mean there's that which you kind of immediately think of but then in general like when you look at the italian film industry in 1987 like private television companies had come to the fore at this point and people were staying at home a lot more and cinema takings were like drastically like being you know reduced to what from what they were so i mean it's hard because i can't i don't have any box office figures from kind of comparable films from the time but italian horror cinema by 1987 was really you know thin on the ground and in general you know cinema goers were less and less and they tended to enjoy american films more ironically even though we're talking about oh maybe it was too american for them they just seem italian audiences <laughs> seem to gravitate towards american films like italian uh, american horrors anyway so it's like you're yeah. damned if you do and damned if you don't like oh well it's it's too american but also not american enough <laughs> yeah i know well <laughs> But, I mean, reception-wise, I mean, look, there, even on Rotten Tomatoes, there were eight reviews of this film. But we're looking at an 88% with an average score of 7.1 out of 10. And then over on Letterboxd, uh, we're looking at a 7 out of 10 or a 3.5 out of 5. Which I find really high. Like, I would not have thought I would have rated that highly. I mean, but that's... Whenever I've met someone who knows this movie, they <laughs> love this movie. Yeah. One of the theater chains here in the, in the States, the Alamo Draft House, they, they did a screening of this in Austin, Texas for Terror Tuesday. And it was a packed 
sold out theater and one of the rowdiest audiences I've had like a fun one not like they were disrupting the movie but <laughs> they were like having fun with this as you should but I feel like that's such a rare occurrence right like there are certain movies where you literally never would have had the opportunity to see it on the big screen so when you get that opportunity you rush out and see it yeah but um but yeah I mean that that's really all I have uh so why don't we go into what happens in this movie <laughs> okay <laughs> so we begin, as you mentioned, following a woman's feet as she's walking. It appears to be like some kind of street. She's not alone, but it's not like there's a, a crowd of people or anything. And we will eventually come to know her as Alicia. As you mentioned, Trace played by Barbara Kupisti. And almost immediately, she's attacked in an alleyway and uh the villain appears to be a man wearing a large owl mask. And <laughs> this is very interesting because you think, okay, we're just getting right into it, right? Like this yeah. woman's being attacked. We don't know her. She'll probably be killed. And then we'll go into the story like usual. And then this villain leaps out and we pull back and we realize we're on a stage. This is a theater production. It's a musical. Uh. It defies all expectations. We've also got a woman who looks like Marilyn Monroe playing a saxophone. Oh, I wrote Bobo Marilyn Monroe in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, this film immediately subverts your expectations. And again, I, look, I am a sucker not only for single location films, um, but also for like movie within a movie. But this is a play within it. I'm sorry, a musical within a movie. And mm -hmm. I'm a little bummed we don't have a singing number because i would have loved to have seen that but <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> imagine. it is what it is i mean okay so this was my first time watching this movie i have heard about it for ages i've owned mm -hmm. this disc since blockbuster went out of business and i bought every horror title i could get my hands on and yeah i i really thought okay this is suave he's coming from the school of argento so i know what the formula is going to be and i thought it's just going to be kind of stock standard. This opening is so exciting and really like it's very visual. It's dynamic. And I'm not going to lie. I fully wanted to see more of this musical number and or I would <laughs> like I would watch a deleted version of this where we just got to watch a whole, as you said, like musical number trace. Mm -hmm. Question. And I love this film, but do you think this is the most intelligent the film is? Do you think it ever matches this after this moment? I think it's the most subversive here. Mm. Like a lot of other things are more standard. So I could see why this film does well with folks who like slasher films. I would have liked if it had kept up this kind of energy throughout yeah. the rest of the film. Remake. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like those kind of meta elements that were so popular in the 80s. And you see them kind of across multiple Italian films. Like there is like nothing underneath, which is in the fashion world. You get the big fashion show and then you get um you have too beautiful to die which is in the world of the music video you've got demons mm -hmm. in the cinema so there's a lot of these kind of self-aware films that have these big like set pieces where they take place in you know the creative industry and it's supposed to be a bit of you know like commentary on the artist or mm -hmm. you know whatever so i guess it kind of follows on a bit from that um but yeah it doesn't it seems to be in that opening you get that and then it fades away yeah. into more of a kind of traditional slasher narrative yeah. which is fine yeah. but yeah it's it does start off with that like you say like you know because what's happening in the film uh, what's happening in the play you think that's going to kind of have mm -hmm. more resonance for the rest of the the film but i mean it's really i suppose it's just really to set up what's going to happen you know it's a bit of a kind of fake out and then right yeah. you know it's going to be replicated with the 
the murder and whatever else because there's just the murder as a stage and it's like that same way isn't it with like the hands that come out and you see those hands kind of come out i think it twice mm-hmm. afterwards mm-hmm. yeah so. well and i think i guess maybe the closest the film comes to matching this is actually the death of i think it's corinne um which mm-hmm. is getting stabbed during the rehearsal which by the way joe what did that remind you of uh the opening of scream 2 oh, okay okay <laughs> that's a wrong answer <laughs> I, I just put that together during this conversation. I never thought about it before. <laughs> I mean, it's not like a one-to-one, so I'm no. just a little stumped there. But yeah, uh, I fully understand like people just standing by watching a murder happen and thinking, oh, this is entertainment. Oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's interesting. I mean, to jump back to what you were saying, Rachel, there is a little bit of commentary in this film. Like, it is mostly slight. It's a lot of these people just getting picked off by this killer in this enclosed location. But I was intrigued by the work that we do to establish how poor these characters are. Like, the reason that they are there to be murdered is because they could not afford to leave this fucking theater when one of their cast members dies. Yeah. Like, other people go home and these people are like i'm too poor i need to stay here for the money which is which is yeah that's a really good observation also it's interesting because you get so many of these films where you're thinking like why on earth would anybody stay but you know that is like the biggest motivation isn't it you've got all the business with the watch as well where obviously it's Mm -hmm. got some sort of sentimental value but obviously it's like monetary as well and it's this whole thing of like she kind of needs to keep the job because if she doesn't then she'll have to pawn like this Mm -hmm. expensive watch that she has that has some meaning to her so yeah, it's, yep. it's something you don't actually. Well, I maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just from what the kind of films I watch. But I don't tend to see that as like motivation in these sorts of films for kind of people getting into these horrible circumstances. So kind of appreciate that. Yeah, it, it's it's a good enough. Like you know, we, we have to suspend disbelief a lot in horror films. But honestly, mm-hmm. like I don't find it that hard to believe that these people would do this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I find it more unbelievable that there is only one key that you have to use to get out of this building. <laughs> Yeah, I in my notes I was like skeleton key. Hmm, okay, <laughs> for a whole theater that doesn't seem like it's up to code. Well, also like I I feel like this happens a lot, but how often can you be locked inside a building? Hmm, that is one of my favorite movie tropes. Is like yeah, the door that locks from the inside. <laughs> Oh, boy. Although I say this as though I haven't locked myself in a bathroom once, so maybe we'll just move on. Oh, my oh, God. There's nothing worse than being, like, drunk. I, that was me, like, the other day. Sorry, digression. But <laughs> I, was, I was, like, had quite a few drinks, and I was in the toilet, and I was like, oh, my God, I actually can't get out. And I was like, I don't have my phone on me. Like, what mm-hmm. am I going to do? I'm just going to, like, die in this toilet. So, oh my God. yeah, we've all been there. We've all been locked in a Rachel, <laughs> my example was literally when I was also drunk, and I could not open the door. So maybe oh it's not God. a thing. Maybe it's just, like, drunk people can't open doors. <laughs> Can you think of any sort of horror film where someone uses somebody drunk in a toilet cubicle because i think we right? could make something happen there we go that that yeah, is us cracking it's realistic the if we were commenting <laughs> yeah, we'd be like oh my god like it's still so like so relatable well that, that that that's how you make effective horror though it has to be something that's relatable that mm-hmm. is everyday things that people are like oh yeah like that could totally happen to me locked mm-hmm. in a bathroom stall there you go yes a hundred percent when you're drunk <laughs> when you're drunk <laughs> <laughs> but at least I was gonna say, at least in America, you've got um. Don't you have like gaps under your doors? We do. Do yes. you not? Most of uh, most of our toilets don't these days. Oh, but see, I like that more because I don't want people to like see me or like see my feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least then you could try and escape out of the outside of it no, instead of being like for trapped. Sure. So <laughs> I can I can have people. Uh, I can be able to escape, but have people hear me and see me shit, or I can have like a. 
closed stall, but to be locked inside, and, but and be died. private. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One option. <laughs> it's either embarrassment or uh, living. So the the first real character that we're introduced to is Peter. He is the director. He's played by David Brandon. And he is not satisfied by what he is seeing in this dress rehearsal. And it's because he is courting controversy. Like his idea for uh, radicalizing this performance is, wouldn't it be amazing if the female victim ends up raping and killing her attacker? And you're just like, oh um, okay. Wait, it's not just, no, it's not just attacker. It's a murderer. So basically... <laughs> the the character is killed but then somehow is able to get up and rape her this is i mean th- this is this pretentiousness we're talking about like this to me seems like a satire on this type of director oh yeah definitely yeah <laughs> yeah he's full-blown asshole and i love that in some ways we get a shorthand version of this like we only need a few lines of dialogue from Peter to know exactly what a prick he is. Well, also the second he does cocaine, it's like, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying up all night. <laughs> so his vision is clashing with the financier, Ferrari. Um, who looks like Paul Sorvino. Yeah, he a does actually, like Paul Sorvino. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, honestly, I went to go look it up. <laughs> Rip. Uh, it is not Paul Servino. No, unfortunately, it is Piero Vida. But again, we have the financier in this Italian film is named Ferrari. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little on the nose, but it, it lets you know everything you need to know about him as well. Mm-hmm. So they're having their mutual meltdowns and temper tantrums, and we spend a little bit of time getting to know some of these other people. Not a lot of names in the early goings on, so you have to kind of pay attention, but Mm -hmm. we're very much, you know, establishing who is this person, why are they different from someone else? So Mm -hmm. uh, we very quickly realize that nearly everyone on this production is broke, so they're really hoping that the musical is a success. We learn, yes, as Rachel mentioned, that uh, Alicia has this valuable gold watch. And we also learn, uh, sheerly through visual imagery, because we see Sybil puking, she is played by Joanne Smith, um, that she and her boyfriend Danny, played by Robert Gilgaroff, uh, they're expecting a child. But it's like literally never actually said. You just have to know, like, oh, she's got morning sickness so it is sad but it's it's literally like basically she's on the phone the first time we meet her she's on the phone and she's trying to be and she just goes oh it's positive oh okay and but, but here's the thing that again they're all poor instead of buying a home pregnancy test which i'm assuming were existing in 1987 mm-hmm. she gets a call from i'm assuming her doctor to tell her that she's pregnant <laughs> uh i don't know how prevalent pregnancy test would have been but yeah a lot of people would have gone to their doctor to get confirmation and then you Mm. have to wait for the doctor to call you back well that is exactly what happens here i mean i know (laughs) someone in the 80s who didn't realize they were pregnant until five months so yeah it could it could be possible i don't know i think there's a reference to an abortion though isn't there no yeah but because this is not the first time this has happened and i I think danny says like we're not gonna abort it again or something like that because they're they're gonna be a a famous family of celebrities Yeah, everyone is really convinced that this show is going to do well, which I love because, as I said, I would watch the fuck out of this, but I acknowledge that as a gay man who loves camp. 
Yeah, I was no. I, this show doesn't look good. D- do I want to see it? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well, it's like it's just so of its time, isn't it? It's that you know, like a lot of people are trying to do these like avant-garde musicals and theater mm-hmm. productions and dance shows, and it's like, like my dad is like a contemporary dancer. And this mm-hmm. is exactly the kind of shit that he was doing in the eighties. It was, you know, like you know, it's like even the costumes and stuff, and the way like that. So, like when I watch this, I'm always like, obviously, I wasn't alive back then. But I'm like, this is kind of bang on, like kind of the themes and like you know, popular trends at the time. Unfortunately, <laughs> oh my God, I Bring love that back. idea. Also, can you please show the movie to your dad and be like? Which one were you? <laughs> Honestly, he's got these like dance videos that were made like the eighties <gasps> and nineties, and they're I swear to God, right? I need to find a way to like transfer them to like digital, mm-hmm. but they're like they have exactly the same vibe. Like I have vivid oh memories God. of you know like devils and undergrounds and like you know red like really vibrant red lighting and quite like nightmarish mm-hmm. scenarios and stuff. So I'm like, it really kind of feels like of its its time, but in a in a good way. Yeah. It's like ridiculous, but it's it's interesting, yeah, because it does make me think of those things. I love that. That's too fun. <laughs> <laughs> so we also learned that Alicia has injured her ankle. I wasn't able to figure out if she had injured it a long time ago or if it was actually during this particular rehearsal. You kind of feel like there should have been a scene where they like cut it out, like she goes, "Oh, my ankle" or something, but she's just kind of like, "Oh, I need to go to the I hospital." Mean, this movie is exactly ninety <laughs> minutes, so it makes me think that they were like, "Okay, y'all, we cannot go past this ninety minute mark." <laughs> Yeah, like, we are cutting anything that doesn't need to be in here. You just need to know that she needs to leave to go to the doctor. People don't need more than that. Move it along. (laughs) So she ends up recruiting her costume designer bestie, Betty, who is played by Ulrike Schwerk. And they beg Willie, the custodian, played by James Sampson, to let them sneak out the surface entrance. And this is where we get Chekhov's single key to open and close this entire theater. Yep. <laughs> so this has all been happening in one fixed location. It's a, a gorgeous, sort of rundown looking theater, but you know we're really getting the vibe. And then we very dramatically cut to a shot. It's like a point of view shot. Uh, we're seeing lights going down a hallway, and we are strapped to a gurney. This is actually Irving Wallace, played by Clayne Parker, and he is a former actor turned serial killer. And he's being wheeled to a cell by armed guards in a psychiatric institution the fact that the murderer in this movie is a former actor who's been driven (laughs) insane (laughs) Mm -hmm. who has no dialogue at all and actually so this actor that plays him only plays him in the scenes where he is not masked Mm -hmm. the killer is played by a plethora of people sometimes even suave himself which is funny because this is not a whodunit like we know that it is wallace like the actors who are being murdered don't know who this person is or why but like we get an exposition dump in this scene which is very much like oh yeah that's who that guy is this is his backstory well they will learn who it is after Benny gets killed because then you know we make the play about <laughs> irving wallace <laughs> right yes <laughs> Okay, so yeah, he's here in this psychiatric institution. And of course, like your ridiculous moment for this film is that this happens to be where Betty has taken Alicia to get her ankle looked at, even though you would not do this. <laughs> I mean, well, she, she, she's like, oh, it's a hospital. I mean, it's, it's a psychiatric hospital. Well, there's still doctors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know I love that line so much. It's like, yeah, that <laughs> makes so much sense. But wait, can y'all please tell me what is going on with this nurse and her lionfish? <laughs> no <laughs> it, 
she's a bit too enamored with it. It's just you know, it's like holds on a beat too long on that scene. And you're like, oh, I don't know, there's something a bit weird about this. The the music really ramps into high gear here. Oh, I wanted to point out too, the composer here is Simon Boswell, who had done work on Phenomena and Demons too, and Joe previous episodes, Lord of Illusions and Perdita Durango. Yes, amazing. But yeah, this <laughs> we just have like 15 seconds of watching this woman like lord over her lionfish before borderline making out with the glass mm-hmm. <laughs> but you were saying about like in the introduction about how stage fright was dubbed as like stage fright aquarius or aquarius mm-hmm. in some right. territories and the whole thing comes from like it was a bit of a thing because it was like off aquarium but obviously it's not aquarium but it was because mm-hmm. the whole idea behind stage fright was that the actors were like fish in an aquarium that the killer was like and the killer was like lording it over and that's why it's raining the whole time through the film because oh my god like they're being rained on and there's all this water so i feel it, so stupid right now i've seen this movie like four times and i did not know that and it, well, if you i don't know if you've seen the like there's different posters but i don't know if you've seen the poster where it's literally like an aquarium with yes. their heads in it uh-huh. oh my like, god that's on the cover of my blu-ray and i didn't know what this yeah. was I'll I confess, thought like I a... thought that it was just not good art. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, because it, it is shocking artwork, but apparently, yeah, that's that's why. It's because it was supposed to be this whole water motif. And the idea from that came from Die Where Gentle's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, because you know the bit where Tony Mazzanti's oh, yeah. Sam is trapped between the panes of glass. Mm-hmm. When Haley saw that, he thought, oh, imagine, you know, this idea of being, like, trapped and looking out on this glass and, like, the killer looking in. Oh, so he kind of transposed mm-hmm. that to being, like, a, a fish tank. But it's it's like a cool idea, but also I don't know if it wholly marries yeah, with the theater idea. It doesn't I mean? fully come into play. Like it, like when you're explaining it to me, I'm like, oh, I'm so stupid. But <laughs> I don't know that I would have put it together otherwise. Yeah, I, I think it, and they would never be able to have this. But if it was like a glass house theater, like if it was mm. like like a museum cool. of sorts, but like a theater, like that, that, that would maybe get the whole point across. But Rachel, let me tell you right now: if you say nothing else for the rest of this episode, you've earned your keep already. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad <laughs> I I've done my bag. I can just sit back and not look like an idiot. <laughs> wait, wait! It says Rachel has left the chat. Where did she go? <laughs> Nearly got me. Okay, so Alicia ends up catching Wallace's attention because she just kind of stands there and looks in his cell for a couple of minutes. But then this twink orderly like is like mm-hmm. checking her out as she walks away. Love it, yeah. I mean, this movie is not so subtly horny for a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah. So this orderly meets a very quick demise. It, it's like, is it your first day on the job? <laughs> what happened here? And it's like, where are the procedures? Where's the health and safety like stuff? Mm-hmm. I love that we don't even see him get attacked because like we don't have time for that shit. We just yeah. gotta see this this, <laughs> knee, this syringe in his neck. Yeah, we, we've needs. got fifteen seconds to look at this woman <laughs> stare at her aquarium. But <laughs> it's thematically important, right? Yes. All this to say, orderly dead. Wallace has escaped. He's in the backseat of the car. And Alicia and Betty are driving him back to the theater inadvertently. So Alicia goes in first. And just in case you hadn't figured out what kind of man Peter was, he immediately fires her for leaving. Oh, man. But her replacement is Laurel, who is (laughs) a delectable bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Laurel is played by Mary Sellers. And she... It's interesting. So I I watched this twice in anticipation mm-hmm. for this because I don't like to just watch movies once and then talk about them for like two hours. And 
I was like, oh, she is giving me a Violet Beauregard vibes in this big ass costume of hers <laughs> that's like bright blue. But I love how snidely bitchy she is. Like, she's not a terrible person, but she clearly wouldn't mind if Alicia fell down a manhole. Well, because is she her understudy or is she a secondary role? I think she has a secondary role because she's the understudy. Got it. Yeah. I was going to start speaking as I don't actually know what I was going to say. I was just going to say because it's the whole, this whole Cinderella thing. So you're saying like Violet mm-hmm. Beauregard, which yeah, is totally bang on. I don't even think about that. But also she's kind of this weird like 80s version of Cinderella. Yes. With the kind of yeah. blue like bubble dress. And then they make all these references to her being like Cinderella. And there's the coach. And there's mm-hmm. Lucifer the cat. So there's all these wee, wee like references to it. But then she's like an absolute bitch. Well, not... <laughs> A semi-bitch, so yeah, maybe not so nice like Cinderella, but um, yeah, I kind of like those wee mentions to it. It just mm-hmm. seems a strange choice at the same time. It's like, why so much effort being put into that with the coach? Right. Maybe they just had the props and like, that's fine. <laughs> maybe. Well, I'm going to tell you right now that when she bitches about that dress to Brett, our gay character, um, I was like, yeah, you should be bitching about that dress. Oh, <laughs> that was a horror. Whoever put you in that hated you. <laughs> exactly. Oof, yeah. Which would have been Betty, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, and I love Betty, though. <laughs> yeah, and Betty has a cramps t-shirt, so she's pretty cool. Oh, Betty is the coolest, so I was like, oh, she's gonna die first, for sure. See, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, she has a great fucking death, but yeah, I really hate that, because because we get, out of this first act, we get to know Alicia and Betty the most, because mm-hmm. they're the ones that go off on their own. Yeah. I like all these other characters, I mean, again, we haven't really mentioned Brett yet, but Brett and Laurel have so many, like, barbs that they're throwing at each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, you can tell that they fucking hate each other and do brunch every week. Yes, yes. Well, well she's like, you can always go back to, uh, you, oh, she goes, you can always go back to selling your ass in the men's room at the bus station, darling. And then they like focus each other. <laughs> so funny. Man. My favorite moment is where he, uh, I think he's uh, mixing and mingling before Alicia and uh, Betty leave. And he looks over and Laurel's. It looks like she's being raped by several men on stage, but like yeah. her it, her back would be to the audience, but she's facing us because we're at the rear of the stage. And she sees Brett looking and she just gives him the finger. <laughs> it's a thing where I'm like, oh, I would love to see more of this relationship, but they're just unfortunately not the focus of the film. So when we're talking about crew representation, like, you know, I, I actually like Brett a lot. He's kind of your stereotypical sassy gay, but mm-hmm. um, I don't care because I, I just think he's very entertaining. <laughs> I agree. I was getting like variations of the backup dancers from like the fan. Have you both seen <laughs> the fan? Yeah. Yes. It's very stereotypical theater gay and I like that, but also because he's one of only eight actual characters in this movie, I feel like in some ways we get to know him just a little bit more than we would in another film of this time. I mean he is unfortunately limited to sassy one-dimensional gay Mm -hmm. but you know what that's addressed (laughs) yeah (laughs) so as alicia is getting fired by peter we do see betty she gets out of the car as you mentioned rachel it is a torrential rainstorm outside and she gets out and just eats it like she gets a pickaxe through the mouth and she oh, is so down good. for the count which i actually think that him not being in the car to kill her is another subversion because mm-hmm. i was like oh yeah she's gonna get in this fucking car but no yes. she makes it out and there's actually a really good shot where swabby just it's her pov and we just see the rain and it's just pitch black behind it and mm-hmm. 
I was half expecting the killer to like, you know, we just see him running towards her. But no, but I just, it's, this is probably the scariest scene in the movie to me. I mean, I don't think it's a particularly scary movie, yeah. but I love the way that this is shot. And that, that shot of the pickaxe in her mouth is just mm-hmm. like, oh, oh. <laughs> I find that it holds on it just the right amount of time because yeah. when we see the pickaxe go in, it's very sudden as we're apt to do, right? Like we, we want that immediate recognition, but we don't want to linger on it if we don't have the money for great special effects. Mm-hmm. But then we do get a kind of medium long shot where, yeah, we're just seeing the rain come down. She's silhouetted against the car and we can see that pickaxe. It's huge embedded in her head. And then she just like falls over and we're done with Betty. But it's a great sequence. At the risk of being cliche, are we reading anything sexual into this death? Mm. Since she's getting a phallic object shoved in her mouth. I mean, you can always do that reading. Like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> There's no more to it than that. That's just it. <laughs> I guess it'd be an interesting way of kill- killing her if she'd been the kind of the rape victim on the stage. Yeah, this would have worked better if it had been Alicia or Laurel, right? Yeah, yeah. maybe. But... Mm-hmm. I will say one of the things... And I know, Tracy, you and I have had a number of conversations about it. Rachel, you've watched Jello films, so I'm sure you've experienced myself. this. We don't often get any kind of satisfying backstory for killers, and sometimes we don't need them. But I really found myself wanting just a little bit more from this Wallace character. Like, we learned that he is a disgruntled actor who went on to commit a series of murders. But part of me was like, so is it that he's at a theater and that's what's setting him off? Or is he just pure homicidal all the time like i think having a smidge more backstory would have helped to give us some context for some of these murders yeah i agree like i think just a tiny bit more like i'm not the type of person especially because i I love charlie and it's like like you say that most of them it's like oh 10 10 second explanation at the end but (laughs) it would be good just to get that like wee bit like even like something like a a tv or a radio on with a snippet of a news report or a newspaper Mm -hmm. you know something just so you can get like like a little snippet that you can then like transpose onto like what's ha- happened and think, all oh, right, okay, this is this and this and that. But all we really get is the theater bit, which is enough. But but wouldn't it have been interesting though if it was like he had like he suffered abuse at the hands of a director like who was too hard on him, and then we have that mirrored with the Peter mm-hmm. character, and he's like, oh, like I'm gonna save all these actors by killing them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, you know that would totally work though. Like that would that would have been good. Yeah, um, just something. But yeah. Yeah. Also to bother. I'd be interested to hear listeners' responses. I feel like we'll have a bit more to say when we get to that murder tableau, which I definitely Ooh. did not call a Jason Voorhees murder tableau in my notes, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Alicia comes out of the theater because, of course, she has no reason to be there anymore. And I love that she almost immediately finds the body, right? Like, she's looking around for Lucifer, who is howling, and it's because of that that she ends up finding Betty's body. But I'm so happy that we're not doing, oh, I just hid Betty's body in a tree, and the rest of them don't know, and I continue to pick them off because I fucking hate those. That actually is a pretty good subversion too, though, right? Like, yeah, we don't spend any time. We spend two minutes max of them not knowing that someone has been killed. Mm -hmm. And the cops are on the scene immediately. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which and yet you say it's a subversion because you kind of anticipate that you're going to waste all the screen time with like, oh, you know, what's happened and when will they discover her? And it's like, no, let's just mm-hmm. cut through all that bullshit and like get straight to kind of the meat of the story, which although a lot of it does, like, in fairness, it's not like you're surprised by many of the things that happen in stage fright, but mm-hmm. like yeah. it's good that sometimes they bypass things like that. So it just makes yes. it snappier. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, well, we're not blowing the lid off the slasher subgenre here, but we are doing little things to be like, it's not exactly what you expect. Yeah. And I think it also plays faster. Like I'm I'm very mindful of that 90 minute runtime. So in some ways they're like, okay, well we're just expediting things. Like the yeah. police are going to come in at some point, so let's just have them come in now and then we can just park <laughs> a couple of dudes outside the theater and we'll cut back to it every once in a while. Yeah. So those those officers, we have an old guard and a new guard and they're played by Mickey Knox as well as Suave himself and it's hilarious to me that they sit outside in their car and they eat donuts and they talk about why the car won't start and none of it fucking matters no. like, <laughs> they have no impact on the plot of this movie and it's kind of great it's just so we can laugh at americans really isn't it yes just like yeah. a, you know fat american cops <laughs> it's rather prescient right <laughs> <laughs> does not age Stage right said A cab. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Peter, proving himself to be full blown psycho, is standing out in the rain with no umbrella. And uh, he decides, you know what? We can market this shit. So, sure, Betty's dead. She's not even cold yet, but let's write this into the show and capitalize on the notoriety. And he just alerts the media and then he locks his actors into the theater so they can continue rehearsals. Which is a fantastic premise for a horror movie. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. You know, I love as well, it's like they call the music like musical this like intelligent musical and it's all he's got these like certain pretensions and then he's just like the most exploitative director ever. Mm-hmm. Like in reality he doesn't care. He's like, we need more rape, we need more murder, let's cash in on this like ripper mm-hmm. that's going about murdering like my um crew so yeah it's quite funny that thing and i'm sure a lot of directors are like that and in the discussion of cinema you know they're trying to make something that seems semi-highbrow but in reality they're just trying to notch up the exploitative like <laughs> elements it's like the equivalent of clickbait in the theater world in the 80s right yeah, yeah. <laughs> well whatever sells and of course the reality is, is as we mentioned earlier these actors need the cash so he's preying on them in a very deliberate way because like he would know them he's worked with them for several weeks up to this point so he knows that they need this big hit because of their various financial difficulties so when he proposes it they all sort of begrudgingly agree um refresh my memory why does alicia stay if she's been fired or is she rehired at this point so he definitely tells ferrari to rehire her so even though she acts like she doesn't want to be there and she desperately just wants to leave throughout most of the movie. I wonder if she's like, okay, well, I still need to pay the rent. She's the only one that calls him out for being a creep when he says, like, you know, oh, yeah, like, I told the paper she was an actress and we're going to, like, make a little plan. But, yeah, she still stays. She calls him out, but she stays. <laughs> well, she's vulnerable, right? I mean, when you don't have any other choice, you you will go along with things because you need that to work out in your favor. Yeah. yeah, and the fact, even though she's calling him, like, scum and stuff, maybe part of her realizes that, like, if the theater, like, production is a success because of, like, the infamy of the murder, maybe, like, that'll catapult her to fame and stuff. Like, she's not, like, portrayed in that way, but you think, like, anyone in that situation, if they were in those kind of dire straits, might go, well, if more people come and visit, see the musical, then maybe it'll, mm-hmm. you know, get me some more money in this ride. 
And that's the thing, right? Because Peter may be reprehensible, but he's not exactly wrong. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, like, exactly. If, <laughs> if they had been able to get this off the ground, they probably would have had at least short-term success. So one of the other reasons that I like Peter as a complete asshole is that he won't even do his own dirty work. So when he locks them in, it's not him doing it. He sends Corinne, who I thought was a PA in this movie that no that that's what i thought too because she's the one that was like reading stanislav oh she was reading stanislavski though so i guess that would make mm-hmm. sense that she's like the actress <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but she is played by laura dana perella and he's basically like oh corinne go lock the door and then hide the key and that will become very important in just a couple of moments <laughs> so uh the next sort of question mark set piece is when we watch laurel get changed out of her costume and she gets spooked because she feels that somebody's watching her so we do get a lot of pov shots from the killer's perspective uh it's very in keeping with slashers of the time what i love is that this doesn't turn into attack so even though she locks herself in a change room oh my god rachel we called it Uh, she thinks it's Brett and everybody just gets mad at him, but he's like, no, it wasn't me. And also we've, we've not referenced that Brett is played by Giovanni Lombardo Radici. I'm guessing Radici and not Radice. It's French. Maybe Radice. Radice sounds better. Let's go with that. (laughs) Um, so he apparently is one of the most famous people in this film because he mm-hmm. acted in a bunch of like American horror films after the fact. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, cool. Um, he is one of the only he's the only actor interview on this Blu-ray. We get an interview with Suave, with uh, Boswell, the composer, with the makeup guy and with this and with him. Yeah, I gather most of the rest of them didn't really do too much except for the actress who plays Alicia. Yeah, I think even the one who plays Sybil did like nothing after this. Hmm. That's too bad. So it's also at this point that Brett is effectively disposed of, but we don't see anything. We just see the night owl slash killer pop up behind him as he's looking for his costume. And that will be the last we see of Brett alive. I am a fan of this reveal, um, but it is an homage to Tenebrae. Yeah, I mean... If you can work in a little homage to the person who mentored you, why not go for it? There's so many you know, like references in this film as well. It kind of feels like very much like a cinema lover. Like even though it's the thing, it's like George Eastman obviously wrote it, but because Sophie, like he directed it, obviously putting these wee things, and I guess like just in general because of it being like quite a standard horror film, you've got like you know like the mental patient that escapes the psychiatric facility, so you feel like mm-hmm. oh, it's like Halloween and the stuff in the shower, yeah, which is clearly yeah. psycho. And like then there's like lots of references to like you know like Marlon Brando and Liza Minnelli and everything else. Oh, so <laughs> I think it's just somebody like I, I think for your first film you would want to kind of go like oh I like Dario Argento's the master and I want to pay like homage to him with this little kind of reference. It's not as good, mm-hmm. but still like nice for fans. But it's interesting, though, because I, I, these all feel like references and homages. But how, when do we distinguish between those and ripoffs? See, for me, this is the only real like shot for shot version. Like this could be directly taken out of Tenebrae. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them, you know, when Rachel lists them off, I'm like, yes, obviously. But because it's not like we're not getting a musical sting that's the exact same as Halloween. We're not getting the psycho, you know, like a shot for shot. She's not like grabbing the shower curtain and pulling it down or something. And I feel like 
that's when I get really frustrated with contemporary homages. Like, mm-hmm. so folks, I'm watching Pretty Little Liars Original Sin. And... Oh, I need to watch that. Thanks for having yeah, me. So... <laughs> but I've, I've heard it's filled with homages. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it it's really good in that regard. Like, it pays homage to, like, just a huge, varied number of classic horror films. Like, they obviously know their shit, but it's also so fucking on the nose. And it happens all the time to the point where, like, are you even making your own piece of art at this point? Or are you just like one character is like Randy from Scream and Nindy from Scream combined together. And it is so fucking annoying. Like she's meant to be the character that we most relate to. And I'm just like, you can't even console a friend whose mom just died without dropping a child's play reference. You're not a character. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're in the minority in the opinion on the show. <laughs> no, I, I really like the show in a lot of different ways. I'm just like, you also need to, there's a difference between a homage and a ripoff. And it feels like more often we're falling into the latter camp. Got it. No, that makes sense. So Brett is done for now. We won't see him for a bit. Everybody is back on stage and Peter ask Corinne, okay, like, we're gonna do your scene. So she's out there, she's waiting, and Brett is missing his cue, and Peter's getting more and more irate, and that's when the night owl shows up, looking very trepidatious, like, wait, what's my line? Where am I supposed to be? (laughs) So then he begins to strangle Corinne, and then he stabs her. And Peter's only response to this is, wait, why are you using a knife? But he's also yelling, kill her! Kill her! Uh, so they do realize fairly quickly that she is actually dying and the night owl runs off. They surround her and they're initially supportive. They want to console her and help her. And then they realize, oh, she's the only one who knows the location of the key. And that's when Ferrari starts to aggressively shake this woman who has been stabbed and strangled. And then Corinne is dead. And then we get this great moment where we go to the cops outside because they're all trying to like escape. And we just get this line from i want to say the not suave cop who's just like fuck popeye because he's eating (laughs) spinach (laughs) like yeah why not (laughs) yeah so they are trying to get the attention of these police but it is raining so hard and also they're inside a giant theater so it doesn't work this is when the killer turns off the lights in the theater. Always a classic horror movie move. Yeah, I I did see some people making criticisms about Wallace's behavior in this film. Like, wait, he's never been to this theater. How does he know how to turn off the lights? And you're like, because he's a theater person. Oh, so yeah, that's it. Maybe that's the only reason why he's an actor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Explain that away. <laughs> Could be. Do you think he might have been to that theater before? I mean, the the asylum is apparently right down the road, so entirely mm-hmm. possible. Yeah, again, like, maybe they give a bit of, like, backstory, even just a tiny bit. It'd be like, oh, he was in a performance that went horribly wrong or something, or at that same theater. Yeah, that that's definitely where I thought the film was going to go the first time I watched it, before I knew that, oh, no, he's just, yeah, he's the classic escaped mental patient, and sure, he knows how to do things. Just go along with it. Don't think about it too much. Yeah, exactly. So the group is like, okay, let's stick together. And they begin to move off and immediately leave Ferrari behind because he has a briefcase full of money that he was using to pay them off. So he stays and starts to pack it up. And that is when he is stabbed to death. Yep. 
No one cares <laughs> about No one cares about Ferrari. Okay. I, I mean, I, I I like the fact that he tries to give him money in order to stop getting killed, but it doesn't work. <laughs> Realistic, like Oh sure. Especially if you've got it just lying there, right? Yeah, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I'm getting murdered and I've got no bartering tools. Uh, so I do love that at this point Wallace turns on the sound track while he goes hunting for weapons backstage. So you've just got like, you know, the the sort of synth score kicking in hardcore. No, but but I know we're talking about Boswell here who worked on Demons 2. And honestly, like I haven't seen Demons 2 in so long, so I can't recall if like what that sounds like. But this score does remind me a lot of the score for the first Demons movie. Hmm. But um, it's um, it's really loud. It's really bombastic, and yeah, we're 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 uh, kicking into high gear right now because everyone's panicking. <laughs> yes, they are flipping out. So the six remaining survivors split into two groups. So four of them are going to stay in this kind of like makeup room, and then Peter and Danny are going to go upstairs to the office to try to find the skeleton key that will open the door. Yeah, um, which I, I like. I like that we're not just like, oh, we're all splitting up. I like that we do stay together and the movie still finds a way to kill these fuckers. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I kind of focus at this point kind of very much on like finding the key. Yes. It just feels like it's not just a case of like, that's like, oh, you know, we need to escape the killer. It's like, oh, they kind of got some sort of purpose. Then the key obviously becomes quite like a important thing when um, everyone's dead and um, Alicia's (laughs) trying to like get from the floorboards on the stage. But yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those like motifs that you always think of when you think of like, um, stage fight is all the kind of visuals of the keys. Well, I like too that their default reaction isn't let's kill this fucker because they're theater actors. Like all yeah. they want to do is escape danger. So their goal is just to get out of the theater. Which is realistic. Yeah, we yeah. actually don't get a lot of fighting back in this. I mean, like until someone's actually attacked. So yeah, yeah, that, that's actually pretty fair. Apart from like, um, is it um, this one? Peter's a bit like Billy Big Balls, isn't he? He's kind of like, oh, at one point he's trying to say like, I, if you don't hurt me, I won't hurt you. And you're like, well, yeah, that's not that going to work out. <laughs> okay, so Peter and Danny are sort of making not a lot of progress. They're ransacking this office. And meanwhile, Sybil is freaking out. And she's also still pregnant and feeling quite sick. And then the door comes under attack. So it starts <laughs> to see the doorknob get turned. And then... A character that we've not talked about, Mark. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know who this character is, except for the <laughs> fact that he dies in this scene. <laughs> yes. So he's played by Martin Phillips. I also wondered if he was maybe a personal assistant or something to Peter, because he does seem to be walking around with like a binder or a clipboard or something for most of the first part of the film. Oh, but... maybe he's, st- he's stage manager. Yeah, there's like a reference, isn't there, to him being in charge? Nevertheless, though, uh, I fucking love this kill. This is great. <laughs> Driller killer. There we go. Yeah. So it it starts almost like a head level glory hole push through and poor Mark is like getting it in the face. And then you're like, oh, OK, well, they could just beat that arm off. Oh, my God. Everything I say sounds really good. But... <laughs> They're like, okay, we should be able to get that arm off of him and he'll be fine. And then poor Mark just gets drilled right through the gut. And I love the fact that Sybil, in an effort to be helpful and like grab a pin or something out of a bottle of fake blood, she spills the fake blood and then we see Mark's blood pooling all over it. And you're like, oh, well, that's beautiful. That, I love that visual. And especially like you've got kind of the blue cobalt shoe. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you see that in the shot, and I like just love like the composition of the shot and the colors. It's just like really nicely done. And that's something we haven't talked about too much, but th- like this film is shot amazingly. There are so many good tableaus in this movie. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. You know what I think is kind of interesting about it is like the cinematography from Renato Tafuri is like beautiful in itself, and just the use of the li- use of lighting, and it kind of has this almost like lava like appearance at times, mm. especially when you have the mannequins. So I think that's also why people tend to refer to stage fright as a shadow because I think visually it kind of aligns with the shadow in those scenes. You've got these just wonderful kind of perspectives and as I said, just the lighting and everything. And I just think it's a really beautiful looking film. And I think especially when people like, you know on Twitter, everyone does that thing where it's like, you know, the four four grids of a pit, like a film with the different pictures. Mm-hmm. I think I see like the ones for stage fright come up quite a lot and they're always, you know, so popular because they make the film look like really artistic. When in fact it is quote unquote, just a slasher film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as though the two are mutually exclusive yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, that's what i really like about the film is i think the visuals are really good and some of the imagery and considering you know it's made on a shoestring budget it does look very well shot and i think that kind of makes sense when you see mikhail sylvie's like later work like the church and the sect which i just think are like visually astounding films and you can see that he had that like, obviously, he's not the cinematographer here, but, you know, like, working in conjunction, you can see he had that vision. Yeah, you almost get the impression that because he's done a lot of these other jobs, he has a better eye for it. Like, in a way, it makes him a better director because he knows exactly what will work having done the other jobs. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I wonder how many, like, slasher directors, you know, who are maybe, like, directing their first picture, like, maybe they were coming from a different kind of school. Like, maybe they hadn't, you know, like worked under someone like Argento so maybe they didn't have that same kind of vision for mm-hmm. well and, and Suave in his interview he even says he's like you know uh people like you know, the, they didn't consider this really an auteur film because it wasn't yeah. really giallo it wasn't really a slasher like well, I mean it is but like but he's like but honestly like fuck those people I, I'm paraphrasing uh because <laughs> horror films are the hardest ones to make like out of anything like so like especially over something that's like just a message like if you're trying to make like a fun escapist horror movie that's like good that's harder mm-hmm. to me than like doing like a regular film that's trying to put out a message yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i think like he he's talked about his influences before and he's like he loves like Tarkov- tarkovsky and stalker and he loves um hitchcock mm-hmm. uh, and truffaut uh, and he's like a big believer in you know like how you create the sense of fear and like horror and it's not just through like the violent kills because Obviously, the kills in this are, like, very violent at stages, but they're not maybe mm-hmm. as violent as they even could be. Like, he does kind of hold back, like, a wee bit at times. So I feel like he's very conscious if it's not just about, like, a splatter, kind of, like, in-your-face splatter. He's also trying to, you know, ramp up these certain elements of suspense. It's, like, it's violent, but not necessarily too gory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even that thing with the blood, isn't it? It's like the fake blood mixing with the real blood. There's a bit of that kind of awareness of Mm -hmm. playing with people's perceptions. Yeah, but we're not getting like intestines pulled out and like playing with. I know, because if you think about Demons, which is like this ultimate kind of splatter, gonzo, like punk horror film, and you think about like the way that the kind of set pieces were done in there and the level of gore, and you know, you got loads of like green liquid and like, Mm -hmm. yeah, blood and guts and stuff. It's nothing like that and as i said i don't think it's even as extreme as like argento set pieces especially from the same time like you know something like opera is very different i would say even though they've got similar premise even which is funny because both of those movies kind of take place in a similar location too right (laughs) yeah and that's the thing like you know demons opera and stage fright they're all kind of similar settings but just executed in very different manners i'd say demons and stage fright more because you've got the element of being trapped inside and it's predominantly takes place in the theater Oh, and, and opera is actually released uh, about six months after this. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. So. Okay. It's, I think, again, it all, like I said earlier, it just speaks to kind of what was in fashion with cinema at that moment and sort these more meta kind of productions. But even though opera was made after stage fright, I don't know if you all know like, the story about Argento and how he was going to make an opera in Italy and it was going to be really gory and horrible and it just got vetoed because they're like, no, that's far too much. So mm. him kind of working on something like that was in development before this so I wonder if you know conversations were had and I don't know if Michele Sove was involved in any way but I think he probably would have been aware of it that's interesting so all of a sudden now we're like wait is Peter a stand-in for Argento <laughs> but this is the thing though Ar- like in our Ar- in um, opera like Marco is a stand-in for Argento so there's all these ideas if you know like I mean it's not exactly like a really advanced idea I mean so many filmmakers have done it but you know it's like the kind of you put yourself as these other characters and make yourself this really exaggerated version, like really horrible person. Right. Yeah. Except like sex and violence and kind of playing up to people's preconceptions of like what a director would be. And again, I'm like, I'd, I'd love to know. I mean, I don't think that's what Suave is doing here, but I'd mm-hmm. be interested to know. Yeah. Like how much was he aware of what Argento was working on at the same time? Yeah. As I said, it's, I, I don't think it's like he's, they're, I don't think they're kind of like one's like a rip off of the other or anything. I think it just like because those were the kind of themes that were going on at the time. I said there's yeah. like other films that kind of dealt with similar premise, like a similar premise. So it's just nice. I think it's like, you know, when you're looking at kind of periods of film and certain kind of areas of filmmaking and then you can kind of see these like themes throughout and then you look at what kind of maybe influenced that. Well, it's interesting too, because like we we have a lot of conversations in North America about the transition from like film to television and how obviously that's when we started to get like all of the inflated pricing with 3d and that kind of stuff because people were trying to make cinema a spectacle again they wanted to lure people out of their homes and if we're thinking about the italian film market at this period right like you mentioned earlier that it was struggling against television like television was the bigger draw and it's interesting then that we get a series of films that are all about like, oh, well, you know, think of these things that happen only in the theater, <laughs> demons, opera, stage fright. I will say, though, seeing all these movies in a theater is a very fun, like a meta experience. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've always wanted to put on a screening in Edinburgh of like demons, but do it like really like go in for it, like make it properly like it. Even to the point where I'm like, get someone to like dress up as a demon and like burst oh my God. the screen. <laughs> scare like, the shit out so of people funny. like i know i was like i'd love that to happen have that mask in a display case in the theater lobby <laughs> oh my god but, you know i just before we move on to other like things it's just something that struck me like it's not like a thing that's exclusive to the 80s or whatever that kind of conversation which as you know yourself but in yeah. like in terms of the shadow there was like one called the killer reserve ninth seats in 1975 and that was set in a theater and it was all these different characters kind of locked inside and there was a killer who You've probably not seen the image of it, but it had like this kind of mask that was like a distorted face with big eyebrows and mm. strange hair. And I think that's very much like, again, you don't know, but it feels like maybe Michaela like forward slightly from that as well, because there are quite a few similarities. You know, it's a good premise. I think these kind of films have been in existence for a long time and it's just each decade or generation kind of do their own things with them. But it's certainly not a novel film idea in terms of, you know, Italian thriller, giallo or horror cinema. Okay, so Rip Mark, he's dead, and (laughs) the group decides, okay, we're firmly going to stick together, and Peter takes the lead, so he guides them out, and he sees that the killer is up on the catwalk, so everybody starts to climb up. 
but lest we have forgotten, Alicia has a bad ankle. So she <laughs> grabs a hold of Laurel because she doesn't want to get left behind. <laughs> we, we haven't really talked too much about how Laurel isn't always the greatest. And I don't think that this is intended to be malicious, but she definitely kicks Alicia and Alicia <laughs> is knocked unconscious. And then Laurel kind of goes, she doesn't have time to climb back down that fucking ladder she can't go save her (laughs) i mean i guess what yeah like what do i expect laurel to do in this moment i guess she could have said hey everybody like we know where the killer is because he was just up there but also alicia's now knocked out unconscious but she she just doesn't really care that alicia is down for the count it's an interesting way though to make sure your final girl lasts until the last act while we kill everyone else just knock her out and have her lie on the floor <laughs> yeah i don't think i've seen that one before you know i just the whole thing just reminds me of showgirls to be honest right I, like, I just when i rewatched it i was like oh yeah it's just i won't lie i was thinking of showgirls with peter's reaction like he reminds me of the owner of the cheetah where he's just like oh haven't had cum on your face in a while huh <laughs> Okay, like we're not there yet, but I'm sorry. The best moment in this movie for me is when he just throws Laurel at this guy with the oh chainsaw. <laughs> I gasp. Like I was just like, he just threw that woman onto a chainsaw to save himself. That is reprehensible. <laughs> and she's just oh like God. arms flailing, like ah! <laughs> I mean, what can you do? It's not like you can stop yourself when you've been thrown by another human being at a chainsaw. <laughs> A chainsaw. It's but wait, terrible. we're not at the chainsaw yet, though. No, no. Sorry. So, so they climb up. Uh, so, forget about Alicia. She's going to be gone for a little bit. <laughs> so they all climb up, and they're up on the top. They've basically lost sight of the night owl. But then Peter sees him sort of sitting, and he doesn't even hesitate. He's got the axe. He just gives him a couple of blows, and then they take off this owl mask, and lo and behold, it's Brett. And I do want to have a conversation because obviously this is the end of our queer character in this film. Almost every review that I have seen says, oh, well, Brett was killed when we last saw him alive, when the killer popped up behind him in that homage to Dario Argento. And I was like, why are we assuming that Peter didn't just kill him? Yeah, that, that that's absolutely how I took it because mm-hmm. Peter, uh, Brett is gagged when they take mm-hmm. off the mask. So why why would he be gagged if he was dead? Yeah, his hands are tied and he is gagged. So I'm just like, wow, Peter just inadvertently killed this only queer character in this entire film. I do think it's a little, I mean, again, we, we don't know much about this killer, but I think it's weird that like, if this is the case, like, you know, oh, he set him up to be, oh, let me put this owl mask on him and I'll gag him and I'll tie him up and they'll kill him because it, that seems to be the point mm-hmm. <laughs> of what this is doing. I don't know why he wants to do this because he doesn't seem like he cares. I don't know. I don't think he's that smart of a killer, but. Well, I, I should be clear. I don't think it. this is like a, a queerly motivated killing. Oh, no. Like he happened to pick Brett because Brett was the person who wears the costume and he needed to get rid of him so that he could assume that role. I think that this is a delay tactic so that he can sneak under the floorboards and mm. grab Sybil. Yeah. Uh, do we consider this barrier gaze? Um, yeah, this is tricky. I always get weird with that because I'm like, well, I mean, like, it's not like if you ever kill a gay person, like, it's, it's like a rectangle square thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because yeah, his queerness is never really a factor in the movie. So I almost mm-hmm. don't think it's the case just because he just happens to be a gay character. But it's like, 
I mean, you can tell he's gay, but it's also never really commented on the fact that he's gay outside of that one joke Laurel says about him selling his ass in the men's room. Yeah, I mean, his his sexuality is definitely referenced, but he's not mistreated by any of the characters. And because this killing doesn't appear to be sexually motivated in that capacity, I wouldn't consider it. Like, it sounds a little bit weird, but true representation in horror would be a queer character being killed just as easily as any other character it's more of like they're the first to go or um (laughs) like they don't have anything else going for them like i recognize that brett is obviously defined by his sexuality in this movie but to me i'm just like oh well he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's why he was killed i think all the characters are so two-dimensional anyway in the film that's almost like they're just like that's your character that's this person you're pregnant you're gay you're this you're that well that, that's what i was gonna i'm glad because we're gonna transition then because oh, what yeah. we have next is our our pregnant woman <laughs> yeah <laughs> who gets ripped in half Oh, man. They kind of like, oh, I'm surprised they went there with that, you know. Right? Hey, Brutal. I mean, I guess you could say, because she's still in the time period where you should be able to get an abortion, even though Danny says, no abortion this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really technically a baby yet. But she is pregnant. She is pregnant, and she is definitely ripped in half at the stomach. Yeah. It is a bizarre choice i feel like if this movie was released now people would immediately latch on to this plot point and be like this Uh character is defined by her pregnancy and then you and then you sawed her in half like that's obviously saying something i don't think it is in this particular film Mm -hmm. but i did think it was kind of deeply ironic because i was like wait we're doing this to the pregnant character we should (laughs) but there is something visually humorous about the way her body the top of her body just flies up (laughs) when he's trying to pull her out of this hole Especially when you see her on the stage later on, and it's just very much like the whole of her bottom half is just gone, and he kind of like picks mm-hmm. her up by the her <laughs> neck. Yeah, she she saw it in half real, real easy, and then those two parts feel like they never, like they were never part of the same body. <laughs> yeah, it's a very clean like. Uh huh. But that's the other thing too. Like, so we're to believe that this killer is dragging her down while you know, in this tug of war, but is also able to cut her in half <laughs> while doing this. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I love that visual though of the the arms just going like and grabbing her. Uh huh. So good. Like it's just really effective. Well, even I love that there's a gentle bit of foreshadowing when we see there's a shot like at floor level of her heel and we can see that the floorboards don't look sturdy and i just thought oh it's a little rickety because it's an old theater Mm -hmm. and then you realize oh no it's because he's about to punch right up through that hole yeah good good stuff you know i like as well about how they it's like her and her man danny and it's you know we're gonna be this big famous family and all this and it's that thing you know when you're watching a horror film and someone makes a statement like that yeah you're just like and straight away you're like dead like, there was a there was a British like comedy show back in the nineties and they had this bit called Spot the Stiff and they went through all these like old war films. So it's like people going like, Oh, you know, like when I get back from the war I'm gonna play the piano again because I was this oh, amazing no. pianist and then they just turn and they're like, His hands are gonna get blown off or like, <laughs> yeah. like it's just you know in straight away you're like, Yeah, that's yeah done for <laughs> well actually because because we have brett and and sybil get killed like back to back and then yeah. immediately danny jumps down he gets chainsawed and then yeah. we're about to get peter's death so 
again for a slasher film mm-hmm. this is a pretty like boom 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 mm-hmm. succession of murders here like this movie doesn't space them out very much no no and and you're absolutely right like denny dies immediately after this so he's gone we we follow peter and laurel as they go down because they've got the key so they're trying to get out of the door it's not working and then peter just gets it so he loses his arm to the chainsaw and then the chainsaw runs out of gas so then we gotta switch to the axe and he gets decapitated oh it's so good he he literally asks him what's the point of killing me too the narcissism actors am i right you know (laughs) i'm on a whole different platform i'm a director are you sure you want to do this to me (laughs) the hierarchy of the theater he's like you're an actor right i i I can can give you a big break right yeah i'm actually surprised he doesn't say something like that that would be so much better i know that would just having that wee line perfect Mm. uh yeah so basically everybody i mean we assume that laurel is dead because we saw her get chainsawed uh she will turn up in a moment but at this point we as an audience think that everyone is dead except alicia they seemingly have all died in the space of about five minutes and also (laughs) there is 30 minutes left in this movie (laughs) i don't mind this as much as you do joe but i I do agree like it doesn't need to be 30 minutes long of just alicia (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i i find the pacing a little bit lethargic in this last act and i think it's just because we're not getting chase sequences we're not getting big set pieces like there isn't anything left to do except follow alicia as she sort of like wanders Mm -hmm. around i still think there's a lot of really good stuff but I'll confess, I also don't think that Alicia is the most interesting of this entire cast. Like, I kind of would have preferred almost any other character to have been the survivor. Betty. Bring back Betty. (laughs) Bring back Betty. Or, honestly, I think Laurel would have been a great final girl. Because she's got sass and personality. She's not a great fighter. But, well, no, um, but, but again, like, because we see that happen more often. Because I'm trying to think of a movie where it's like, oh, the nice girl that you think is going to be the lead dies first, and the kind of like bitchier girl comes in as the actual final girl. Like, I know I've seen that in more modern horror films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that actually would have been a really, really, really good choice for this movie to make. Yeah, it's unfortunate they didn't go with that. I would have liked to see that. But again, like you say, like, we're calling it modern horror, but yeah, less so back then. If you were dating her, Barbara Kupisti as well, I suppose you're probably like, I'm going to keep her till the end. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing, like, I mean, I don't even know if it's Kupitsi or Kupitsi herself or if it's the role of Alicia or a combination of both. But I do agree, yeah, she's not the most compelling or particularly memorable final girl. Like, what I remember about this climax is is the, the staging of the bodies and not yeah. Alicia looking at the camera in fear. Yeah, because she was in so many films in the 80s, and I feel like she's just never stood out in any of them. I'm sure some people would disagree with me, but I just never felt she was as compelling as some of her peers at the time. I could see other people like maybe Joya Scola or something in it, but like in that kind of role, but I don't know, something about Barbara Christie just doesn't quite work for me. But then the role is hardly, you know, like complex in itself, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> well, it's an interesting phenomenon, because I feel like sometimes we see... I'm going to say it. We see certain people get cast because they are good looking, right? Like mm-hmm. they they are commanding on the screen. People find them visually appealing. And I'm not suggesting that's the case here. Like she's obviously a very attractive woman. 
but I do think that she's also a good actress. So I'm I'm a bit more inclined to blame the character because aside from her money problem and her ankle, like we just don't know anything more about her. If she was one of eight people who were still alive going into this climax, I don't think we would mind quite as much. But when she has to carry the entire film for 30 minutes, I'm like, she's got no one to react off of. And we don't know anything about her. Well, and but that is the thing, too, like in terms of pacing, where, yeah, we just had like murder set pieces in like, a yes. bunch of them in the span of five minutes. And uh-huh. that is really fast and exciting. But yeah, that does kill any momentum. Uh-huh. And, it would be different, I think, if there were if there was a chase scene with her, or if there was like, a, oh, I think I know I keep going back to Scream too. I mean, oh, the, the audio visual where Gail's hiding from Ghostface, like something like that, where we're having a little bit of fun, mm-hmm. but we don't have that. We just have her, you know, going under the stage um, to get the key. Which, bear in mind, though, that shot of the key, like the big key in the frame, and we mm-hmm. have the killer in the background. That is a fucking gorgeous shot. Yeah, beautiful. It's one of the yeah, it's the ones you can remember from it. Yeah, to me, that was the standout of this last act. Like, I don't know how much I want to have a conversation, but I think it is interesting that she doesn't make an attempt to save Laurel when they're in the showers. Like, I think we're meant to read it as she's terrified and she maybe realizes she can't do anything. But part of me was like, this movie is making a bit of a condemnation about these people saying that they're always going to stick together and then they abandon each other when the going gets tough immediately like we saw laurel do it to alicia and then she kind of reciprocates here peter's a terrible person and is willing to like throw a woman onto a chainsaw to save himself (laughs) like in some ways these people are awful but i feel like we're not actually meant to think that with alicia with regard to what happens to laurel but i'm like she's right there and you you don't even whisper i'm sorry or mouth it or something uh, the killer's gonna, oh, I guess mouth it, but I'm like, yeah, it, it reeks of self-preservation and mm-hmm. I don't fault her for this. Like, Peter okay. is like, no, 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 you literally threw someone in front of a chainsaw. <laughs> 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 With this one, because I, I think, because she sees her before she, the killer is in, so she sees her, but I think pretty quickly the killer comes in and grabs and then stabs yes. Laurel. So, I, I mean, it, it sucks. It's not a good position to be in, but I'm not gonna lie. If I was in Alicia's position, I'm not gonna... Right. I can't say I'd save either one of you if you were in Laurel's position. <laughs> I, know, I guess you could read it as like, oh, it's the competitive nature of being actors and how she like kind yeah. of shook her off when she's going up the ladder and now it's almost like payback. But because Alicia as a character seemed to be like, you know, this almost Mary Sue type, you know, like mm-hmm. she rises above it and she challenges the director and she's not this way inclined maybe it just yeah i don't think yes it's supposed to be read that way but maybe for us to be more interesting if that's what happens i don't know yeah i'm imagining a contemporary remake where yeah either alicia would have been killed and laurel would secretly be our new final girl or Mm -hmm. there would be a lot more animosity and we'd maybe even take a little bit of pleasure in laurel getting the receiving end of a knife yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I said, like we were talking about, is it, you know, it's probably not Barbara Cupicity's fault. It's more just the way her character's written. There's not like a lot for her to do at this juncture in the film. It's, I don't know, it's, it's hard because, like I said, she was an actress that never had any leading roles, really. She mm. was more kind of relegated to, you know, like co starring roles or kind of more minor, minor performances. But um, right. yeah, it's, I mean, there's just nothing for her, her to do, really. So, <laughs> and you kind of want something more like that and to see how she would have managed it. But 
you can see why they didn't go down that that route but well okay so let's let's talk about trace's mention of the stage set piece then because i do think that that's definitely the most visually memorable piece of this last act i ate this shit up you know we're murder (laughs) tableauing it we've got the night owl we've got wallace sitting on this throne with the cat like he's a fucking bond villain the cat turns on a switch so that the fan is blowing these feathers everywhere and then she is meanwhile trying to like gently wedge this uh this key out from under the stage i fucking loved all of this well and it's a long it's long like, it i want to say it's five yeah. minutes of her just watching mm-hmm. him play when he sits on that chair his throne mm-hmm. <laughs> the cat is eating sybil's guts that are i'm sorry probably the baby that's coming out of her stomach. oh my god trace <laughs> well that's <laughs> developed yeah <laughs> yeah this is all all great i mean again i i do like her I genuinely jump every time when she gets the key and she backs up out of that stage and then mm-hmm. he just comes swings down behind her. Yes. Ooh. So Ooh. Well, I love too that she has a gun because she managed to get it out of the office. So she has the key now and she has a gun and she's like, I'm going to blow you away. Fuck. The gun doesn't fire. Because the safety's on the oldest trick in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that the same thing in fairness when I have a fucking clue what to do. Me too. Yeah. Well, but yeah. then she does stab him in the eye, so it's not as though she isn't resourceful, right? True. And then true. she sets him on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she drops him from the rafters, she sets him on fire. Like, she is giving a good fight. I think part of it is just for some reason, this doesn't have the same energy that we were getting with the other murders like even the setting him on fire like it's filmed in slow-mo and it's gorgeous it's beautiful it's like such an amazing moment okay so i I think what what, what, when the film is trying to be the most suspenseful in this section is when he's climbing the rope and she's Mm -hmm. axing it yes that rings a bit more goofy to me i do like it actually but i don't find it particularly suspenseful but i think the music is doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it's trying to come to, again, not even suspense, but like thrills in in this last mm-hmm. act. I'm curious, Rachel, do you find this either a suspenseful or thrilling film? Because I have seen, that was actually one of the other things that shows up in a lot of reviews is people saying, well, it's not really very scary. And part of me is like, is it meant to be scary or is it meant to be thrilling? I mean, like I said earlier, it's like Sylvia's clearly interested in like the Hitchcockian kind of idea of suspense and he said that himself you know he's on record saying it but I don't think whilst it's not particularly gory I don't think it's particularly like suspenseful or thrilling Mm. I think it's meant to be fun yeah I know I don't I don't think the intention is it's supposed to be you know like you're terrified you're on the edge of your seat like it's fun it works like it hits all the right beats right I think like as well like with the the owl costume itself I Like so some good. people say it's like scary and some people say it's like wait, ridiculous. But I, I mm-hmm. think like in that scene, like you talk about the amazing murder tableau scene and he sits there with a cat. I think there's something really like creepy and unnerving. And, you know, these get like mm-hmm. these close up shots of the owl face like coming towards you. I mean, yes. that's just kind of a personal opinion. Other people, maybe not so much. I know Sophie was like influenced by the collages of uh, Max Ernst. That's where the inspiration came from it. So he'd obviously kind of seen this and thought, oh, that would be like that sort of quite striking, sinister image and like brought it to the film. So yeah, I think I, I like stuff like that. I think I think it works well, but I I don't know. It's not like terrifying. I think it's better, better kind of slasher costumes, but I, I really like it. 
think? Do you think it's like a, a scary? I don't find it scary. No, mm-hmm. there were definitely sequences where I was excited. Like, okay, are they going to make it out of this? Are they going to be able to fight back? And yeah, the answer is kind of no. Like these people get chopped up pretty easily by this killer. But I was more taken, I think, by some of the giallo influences, like just the staging of some of these set pieces and particularly this final tableau. I find it so gorgeous. And the costume of this killer, we we <laughs> haven't touched on it enough. It is so memorable. Like I hadn't seen this film and I knew exactly who the killer was. It's like you just have to say, oh, yeah, it's the owl headpiece. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I wonder if this film would have had the same impact if it didn't have a killer in that costume, because I think oh, that God, is no. still synonymous mm-hmm. with the film. Well, that, that, that's the thing, too, because like whenever people talk about, like, yeah, like, like uh, your famous slashers, it's like, yeah, okay, we well, you're Jason, you're Michael Myers. I'm like, mm-hmm. but it's it's something like this or that granny mask and curtains, or oh, I'm God, like, those yeah. are the memorable ones for me. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. Like, I do not like that. <laughs> I, oh. Oh, I hate that. It just gives me creeps. Imagine it's like so creepy. in the dark or something. Right? You know? That one I think is legitimately scary. This one, it's almost comical because it's so overly large. Like yeah. logistically, I'm thinking, oh, you wouldn't be able to run after people. You would get that head stuck in a door frame or something. <laughs> but I think yeah. it works because it strikes such a strong image, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not going to forget that. And I think suave knows how to frame it so that it comes off looking majestic as opposed to comical yeah completely mm. and like i said in that bit where you know they're on the stage and he's stroking the cat it just feels like a disconcerting image just because of mm-hmm. like what's occurring on stage it's not just him it's the cat you know it's these like corpses um and it's just like almost like because of that surreal element because obviously mm-hmm. that kind of comes from the fact of like it was inspired by max ernst's work but yeah like i think like majestic's like a perfect word because that bit does feel like majestic and I, you know, like owls themselves, you kind of think of like the symbolism and whatever. It makes me wish I knew more about owls to see if it was something more meaningful. <laughs> I will say, though, I do think that whenever we get close ups of the killer's eyes inside the mask, I think that's actually when it does look kind of more creepy than mm. silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're like black marbles, right? Yeah, but then you can see his eyes like below because like, yeah, you have like the the eyes, but then the little holes for the human eyes below the owl's eyes, mm-hmm. and when you see them, he's like moving and so like, his he's moving his eyes and staring bloody murder like that. That, that to me is genuinely unsettling. Um, <laughs> but then when he, we pull back and it's just a man in a giant owl head mask, it's just kind of like okay. <laughs> I know, and, like when you see the start, you know, when they're like the before you know about all the killer stuff, when you see like the dancer and he's got like the owl mask on and they strip his kind of jacket and trousers off and he's wearing that flesh leotard and he's mm-hmm. dancing along, like dancing around and doing this kind of big jumps and whatever else and it just that seems almost like absurd at that point as well yes but that's yeah that's like, yeah it's like, i don't think the intention i'm going back to like scaring and stuff but like mm-hmm. i don't think the intention here is to scare it's to be playful and have fun and mm. inspire dare i say inspire joy in the audience when they're watching <laughs> this you know, so like, it's, some, it's somebody who loves cinema somebody who loves horror cinema is mm-hmm finally getting an opportunity to direct a film that they probably never thought they would do as you know you you said about um you know it was never his intention so he's just having fun with it and it's yeah. you know he is putting those principles into practice of what he's learned and you know who he, he admires what they've done in their careers but ultimately you know he's just having fun with a low budget film and making the best of the circumstances that he's got to deal with 
<laughs> right. Exactly. I like, yeah. Also, I think it's quite interesting. I just totally forgot about this earlier. Like, I believe that it was shot in the De Laurentiis studios. And I don't know if that was, I think that might be at the time where they were reaching bankruptcy or things were all going wrong, but it was a really dilapidated set and it was too hot and it was really dusty and everyone had a miserable time filming. But they said oh, that, no. that kind of heightened the whole experience because it really played into the kind of film and the ideas and that like tense atmosphere where everyone was a bit hysterical. Mm-hmm. So I quite like that. I think that's, that's good as well. So it's the fact that it was quite a cheap production kind of played into it there. I will say the setting for me is a huge perk. Like I love how much of this theater we're actually seeing and how, how varied the set pieces are considering that really there's the main room with the stage there's the back section where the makeup room is and then there's the rafters and yet it feels like we're making use out of all of this space like I have a good sense of geography but it's all again I'm going to say memorable because I think even that moment where they're up in the rafters and he's approaching her and she's like crawling back because she has no weapons before she sprays him in the face with the fire extinguisher I'm like how often do we get to see a full set piece in a theater rafter? Like, how novel. It's really exciting and interesting. Yeah, it's um, one that kind of reminds me of if you've seen Too Beautiful to Die, when they're shooting a music video, they've got all their rigging up above, and there's very similar shots of, you know, like a character running down the rafters and a killer pursuing them, and you see you know, those perspectives, like, from there, like, looking downwards and stuff, and it's just really, like, novel and interesting, isn't it? It's just something mm-hmm. a bit different. Um, and like you say, because it's such a small location... And it's all contained to that one theatre. You could get quite bored by it, but yeah. they make yeah the most of the space. Like you say, you know, like the, the, the different heights. You know, right in the rafters, right um, um below what under the stage. Do you call? Is there a technical term for it? Uh, I don't. Think I don't so. know. I think it's crawl space. Yeah, I don't think there's a name for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So like just under the stage, but yeah, I think that's really effective. Okay, so that basically brings us to the end. She's lit him on fire. He seems to be dead happily ever after. She's a subject of notoriety with the media. And then she comes back the next day because she realizes that she's lost the watch. So she has to come back and get it. And we get one final scare. What do we think of this ending? It feels like an unnecessary epilogue to me. I mean, I, I, tacked on. I, I like that we, yeah, we're giving the person of color the killing blow. Like, yay. Yes. But I'm just kind of like, what? Like, also, why is he still here? Like, not, 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 uh, why is the killer still here? It's very weird. I love Willie the Johnny. I think he's a Johnny, right? Is that like a janitor? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I really liked his character. I just want to see more of him. I liked him. I just, I kind of wish that he had been there the whole time instead of just showing up at the beginning and the end. I know. I just, that's the thing. It's like it's good when we saw him, but it's like we we saw more of him. But it's good, mm-hmm. yeah. Like that he he delivers the final blow. It's slightly random. I don't know. It just doesn't quite work. Yeah, you're right, Trace. It does feel a little tacked on. It feels, I don't want to say unnecessary because things in movies will be what they are. But do we care that she doesn't get the killing blow? I, If she were a stronger protagonist, I would be more bothered by that. Hmm. But it's also like she does so much to him before this epilogue. I don't know. I mean, honestly, every time I've watched this movie, I forget this is here. <laughs> Which is really funny, <laughs> considering the ridiculousness of the repeated right between the eyes. Right between the eyes. Right <laughs> between the eyes. <laughs> Best line in the whole film. It's very bizarre. People mention it a lot, too. So clearly it, it does work for some folks. It's yeah, it's memorable, but not. 
<laughs> maybe like, not for the right not reason. Not in the right way, though. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, uh, what you do is you remove this scene of five minutes, and then you add five minutes of killer backstory. Was <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. it you were saying about how, like, you know, Alicia she's doing all these things to the killer, and like, you know, she gives as good as she gets but it's weird because you never really feel like she's a strong protagonist even though she's doing all these like things to the killer which so yeah and then at the end she doesn't deliver the final shot anyway so it just feels a bit like i just wish that maybe it was like i don't know how they would do it maybe through a bit of dialogue or something i'm not saying she has to come up with all these like sassy like, like one-liners to the killer but <laughs> you know she's doing all this the stuff and it just she still feels a bit like of a a nothing mm. character yeah <laughs> you imagine but... before she drops the flaming barrel on him if she's like action <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know which would probably be quite cringe but i, I don't know what i the thing is i don't even know what i'm expecting like i just She's not one of my favorite, you know, like female protagonists. And yeah, slasher, no. shadow, just something missing. But again, can't really blame <laughs> yeah. them. There's not really much going on script wise for her. It is tough. I feel. I feel like if this film suffers for me, it is the fact that it relies so heavily on her in that last act, and that she isn't a either a bigger personality or somebody that I root for more or that she comes off stronger. And maybe that's unfair. Like, I think we sometimes forget that not everybody can be a Sydney Prescott or like a second cycle of slasher final girl, because I know Trace, you and I, we grew up in that era. So I think we always expect like, we're going to get sassy one-liners. We're going to get like kick-ass final girls. They're going to be really capable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the final girls in the, 80s like they had some of those elements but not all of them and they weren't strong like the 90s heroines were so maybe we just have unrealistic expectations but yeah i can't help but feel like uh, alicia you're fine i don't know i mean like i mean like not to like go to the basic of basics of friday the 13th but look at jenny and friday part two like that mm. is 1981 and she is a badass final girl absolutely jenny is fantastic but i also feel like she's a bit of an outlier in some mm, capacities yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah, and I, I get what you mean about not everybody can be that kind of like sassy, like final girl, really strong minded and whatever. And you need like diversity in the types of like characters that you have in those roles. But right. yeah, mm-hmm. I know it's just it's like, it was like I'm saying I'm like I'm like complaining about it, but I'm like, what is the alternative that you'd offer? And I don't really know. I just know, like like you said before, before I, I just feel like I'm not necessarily rooting for it. I'm rooting her for in the like, most basic, you know way that you do for someone in like a horror slasher film but right but maybe it's because though like i mean if this if this movie were like trying to be genuinely horrifying and scary i would be more okay with this portrayal of a final girl because i would believe that yeah you would be like terrified and like you know whatever but because it is so high energy it's frenetic it's fun i kind of want her to be the same way yeah exactly and that's like why am i more connected to willie the janitor than like the main girl even though he's barely in it. And the, you know what you're saying about Laurel and stuff, which, he, but like, it feels like so many of the characters have more personality and there's more going for them. Mm-hmm. And then you just got, like I said, this kind of Mary Sue type person that you're not really too bothered about. <laughs> okay, but like, is she a Mary Sue? Because she, well, I guess she doesn't really have, I mean, yeah, what what is her weakness? <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty capable, all things considered. I just want her to have more pizzazz when she does them. Yeah, exactly. Her weakness is that she's not charismatic. Right. <laughs> that does not affect her ability to survive the movie. But also, 
she was the fucking lead of this musical. Can you imagine? I know. I, I, I'm a little okay, but <laughs> but she gets killed, but she comes back from the dead to rape her oh murderer, God. and so I, I'm assuming she continues to stay as the protagonist throughout the rest of the musical. I don't really know how, how what the plot of this thing. Is. I kind of feel like they made the right decision, like choosing Laurel to be that part instead, because I can just not imagine like her character being able to convey that sort of person. Right. No. But also, now challenge to listeners, I would like you to draft a plot summary of what this musical would be. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, we know, because, like, again, is the premise that she is murdered and her ghost rapes her murderer? Or is that just one scene in a larger picture? I, I feel like it's not actually even what happens in the musical. It's just what Peter wants because he thinks more controversy equals dollar signs. Well, because he says something about how he's like, it doesn't have to make sense. It just has to be like memorable or something. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, so yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, you're just style up the rape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is just meant to be meta commentary for the film that we're actually watching. But yeah, it's got us now <laughs> hypothesizing about this fictitious musical. Oh my god. But that's stage fright. That is stage fright. Um, Rachel, first of all, thank you so much for coming to talk about this movie. This has been a blast. <laughs> I've had fun. I hope I was able to offer some interesting insight or just oh. a coherent sentence even. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you paid your dues here. And before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Rachel, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, they can find me on mainly Twitter and it's at Rachel underscore Nisbet, but my spelling of Rachel is the awkward one. So <laughs> yeah, I know it's got an extra A in it. So you can find me on there and you can find my stuff on like I do various like, like you said, I, I worked for Arrow and I do stuff for Vinegar Syndrome and stuff. So you can find my work on those. Yeah, we need to pick your brain about getting in with Vinegar Syndrome. And <laughs> all these and Arrow. <laughs> you are all over the place, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> to like three and then the latest like one they're doing i ended up being on like three pieces which was not intentional it just kind of <laughs> somehow it's like do you want to do this could you do this for me and i was like oh my god i've got a hen do this weekend <laughs> like, oh no bash out this piece of work but yeah. yeah and also for people um they're interested in stage fright shameless has just released a new edition of it in the uk so that's quite cool so it's another way of seeing it and i think there's other extras and things like that on it Ugh, oh, i'm so fantastic jealous. yeah, yeah so. this blue underground one is good but it's uh i mean it could have more stuff on it there we go yeah and it was weird because shameless actually released like you can rent it probably not in america i'm afraid or north america but um it's like got the so they have the he shot it in a certain aspect ratio but also like is that the right way of saying it? I don't know. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, like the film's in a certain aspect ratio, but they've got a version where it's like in a different aspect ratio. So there's obviously a lot more detail in the frame. Oh, wow. So it's just a bit of a curiosity. That so, is I mean, cool. Again, it's only, unfortunately, I think it's only in the UK you can watch it, but it's nice to see things like that, just to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. So I quite like that they did that. It's something a bit, a bit different. I don't tend to see that. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd. Keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our peers. If you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, 
please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get over 195 hours of extra content. But Ooh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but this month we have episodes on Netflix's Resident Evil series, Hulu's new Predator movie, Prey, Peacock's new queer slasher film, They Slash Them, A24's murder mystery whodunit, Bodies, 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 and an audio commentary on Event Horizon just in time for its 25th anniversary. Uh, so much good stuff this month. So much. This, and it, continuing into September and October and probably November. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay, you guys put the work in. That's impressive. It's oh, <laughs> a lot man. of extra content. It's good stuff, though. It, it's fun to get to cover some of the contemporary things there. Well, now we're getting queer stuff in contemporary shit, so we've got to like make up for that, too. There is that, too. Yeah. <sighs> but, Joe, uh, we are going back into some modern queer stuff next week, because what are we covering finally? Uh, well, it's ironic that we had so many conversations about water on this particular episode because, yeah, we are going to go to a little island and we're going to get trapped there by a big storm. It's finally time to talk about Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Ooh, this is a first time watch for me because I missed it in theaters and I've been wanting to watch it forever and I've been holding on to my blue just for this episode. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> But everyone, until then, and those queer seagull-y shenanigans, we can cross <laughs> out stage fright. <laughs> Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.